Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Jeffrey Brown, Ted Kuzer, and Connie Wanick. You will now hear AWP Board of Trustees member Cheryl St. Germain and Michael Wiegers, Executive Editor of Copper Canyon Press, provide introductions. Welcome, everybody. My name is Cheryl St. Germain, and I'm a member of the AWP Board, and we are absolutely delighted to welcome Copper Canyon Press to AWP this year. I just have a couple of housekeeping items, and then I'm going to turn it over to them. Please turn off your cell phones, or we will escort you out the building. Remember that there is no flash photography allowed during this presentation. And I also want to remind folks that you can buy books immediately following this event near where the coffee shop is out there, and then the writers will be signing books right just outside here. Give them about 15 minutes after the presentation to get there to sign the books. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Michael Wieger, the executive editor of Copper Canyon Press. Thank you for all coming out this afternoon, and thank you to AWP for inviting these fantastic poets uh, to read for us today. I'm going to get up and introduce each poet as they read, so we're going to start today with Ted Kuzer. Ted is the author of 20 books, including 13 poetry collections, and a great book of advice on writing, uh, on poetry writing. And his works include his new, newly published Splitting in Order, which we published at Copper Canyon Press just this past year. A two-term poet laureate, he's also the winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry for his book Delights and Shadows, also published by Copper Canyon. He was born in Ames, Iowa in 1939, uh, and he's the former president of the Lincoln Benefit Life Company, which is an insurance company out of Nebraska, out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, he currently lives near, near Lincoln in the small village of Garland, uh, Nebraska, and serves as the presidential professor of English at the University of Nebraska. And just a little anecdote I want to point out is that um, Ted drove all the way from Lincoln yesterday, and so he's, he's catching up on his sleep, but he managed to stop along the way at the rest area because of a woman who had written to him to tell him about this handmade book that she had made, uh, handwriting all of his poems into this uh, personal copy that she had made, and I believe she made one for Ted as well. And so they met at a rest area just so uh, she could show him Um, this book that she had made specifically for herself. And I bring this up to give you an indication of the you know, just the, the type of warmth and generosity that, that Ted brings to, to every act. You see it evident in all of his poems, as well as in the gestures, like stopping at a, at a roadside rest stop in order to share some woman's enthusiasm for a book. And just like, like he cares for, you know, what that woman has done, I think he cares for all of us as readers. And it's w- one of the things that I, that I most love about his work and about him as a person. So please join me in welcoming Ted Kuzer.
Thank you. Um, I like to tell this story. I've told it too many times, but shortly after I was named Poet Laureate, the L.A. Times ran a story about it, and we were a little mugshot of me and a friend of mine in, in L.A. Um, showed it to the neighbor boy, who at that time was like six or seven years old, and um, told him all about what a Poet Laureate would do and what a Poet Laureate might do and what Ted Couser might do and this and that and the other. And at the end of, the, of this little session, he said to this boy whose name was Bucky, he said, so Bucky, what do you think? And he said, I think he looks like a hobbit. So that'll give you something to look at while I'm standing up here and think about. I'm going to read some, a few poems from um, this new book that Copper Canyon has just published called Splitting in Order. The poems I'm going to read today are pretty important to me, to this book. They're about the way people come together to help one another out. Um, this is the title poem, Splitting in Order. I like to watch an old man cutting a sandwich in half, maybe an ordinary cold roast beef on whole wheat bread, no pickles or onion, keeping his shaky hands steady by placing his forearms firm on the edge of the table and using both hands, the left to hold the sandwich in place and the right to cut it surely corner to corner observing his progress through glasses that moments before he wiped with his napkin, and then to see him lift half onto the extra plate that he asked the server to bring, and then to wait, offering the plate to his wife, while she slowly unrolls her napkin and places her spoon, her knife, and her fork in their proper places, then smooths the starched white napkin over her knees and meets his eyes and holds out both old hands to him. Two men on an errand. The younger, a balloon of a man in his sixties with some of the life let out of him, sags on the cheap couch in the car repair shop's waiting room. Scuffed shoes, white socks, blue trousers, a nondescript gray winter jacket, his face is pale, and his balding head nods with some kind of palsy. His fists stand like stones on the tops of his thighs, white boulders, alabaster, and the flesh sinks under the weight of everything those hands have squeezed. The other man is maybe 85, thin and bent over his center, one foot swollen into a foam rubber sandal, the other tight in a hard black shoe. Blue jeans, black jacket with a semi-tractor applique on the back, white hair fine as a cirrus cloud. He leans forward onto a cane with both hands at rest on its handle, as if it were a steering wheel. The two sit hip to hip, a bony hip against a fleshy one, talking of car repairs, about the engine not hitting on all the cylinders. It seems the big man drove them here, bringing the old man's car. And now they're waiting. Now they have to wait or want to wait until the next thing happens. And they can go at it together, the younger man nodding, the older steering with his cane.
This is something that everyone in this audience has observed. Changing drivers. Their nondescript late model car is pulled off on the windy shoulder, its doors flung wide, and the driver gets out, gripping the roof with a hand and lifting himself, just as the woman gets out of her side, both of them stiff, both kneading the small of their backs, rolling their heads on their necks, squinting into the midday sun. Then the driver starts out around the front bumper, swinging his legs as if they weren't his, his thin hair lifting, just as the woman straightens herself and sets out around the trunk, holding her permanent white curls in place with both hands, both man and woman calling a few words back and forth across the axis of the car's hot roof as they stoop and fit themselves inside and the car's springs settle a little and each of them reaches a long way out to pull the door shut. Her door first, then his, and they rock and shift, fastening their belts. Then both of them lean forward almost simultaneously and peer into their side view mirrors to see whatever is bearing down from wherever they've been. And together they ease out over the crunching gravel onto the highway and move on. This one's about two people that didn't make it. This is called First Marriage, um, an autobiographical poem. Um, Neither of us would clean the aquarium. A green box under our troubled roof, stuffed with mementos nobody wanted. Sometimes it fluttered with a silvery light, the only sign of life for months on end. Nor would either of us feed the fish but, it, but made them eat what they found in that murky, weedy silence. At the end of the marriage, when we divided our things, we gave the aquarium away, and the woman who came for it dipped into the green, and from a couple of dozen fish we'd had, there were only two left, big silver dollars that had thrived on neglect and had eaten the others and grown as big as the palms of our hands which hung, not touching, guilty at our sides. I live on a farm about 20 miles from Lincoln, Nebraska, and it's an old, the, when we bought it, the original farm buildings were there, and I've continually found interesting old things in all these old buildings. And this is a lantern that I uh, have. In the pre-dawn cold and darkness, it was only a pinch of light, not more than a cup of warmth, as a farmer carried it over the snow to the barn where his dozen cows stood stomping, heavy with milk, in the milky cloud of their lowing. But that was many years ago, and his lantern has rusted, its last fumes lost on the seasons like the breath of those cows. But at the last, he thought to leave a fresh ribbon of wick coiled up in the chimney in case it was ever needed again, a dollar's worth of preparation. And getting prepared for a later winter, a pregnant mouse was able to squeeze in through a vent and unravel that wick and make a cottony nest with dusty panoramic windows 
and there to raise her bald and mewing, pissy brood, and then for them to disappear, the way we all one day move on, leaving a little sharp whiff of ourselves in the dirty bedding. One more from this book, and then I'm going to read one more poem. Two, T-W-O. On a parking lot staircase, I met two fine-looking men descending, both in slacks and dress shirts, neckties much alike, one of the men in his 60s, the other a good 20 years older, unsteady on his polished shoes. A son and his father I knew from their looks, the son with his right hand on the handrail, the father left hand on the left, and in the middle they were holding hands. And when I neared, they opened the simple gate of their interwoven fingers to let me pass, then reached out for each other and continued on. And this is a, it's another poem like those, um, watching other people published, written and published since this book came out that I thought I would close with. In the next booth at Village Inn. It seems that an online dating service has brought them together for breakfast, probably hungry by 10 in the morning from waiting so long. A man of maybe 70 wearing hearing aids and a thin and chatty horse-faced woman of maybe 55. She is telling him everything about her life, her childhood, children, job, religion, and he is doing his best to catch the consonants as well as the vowels, watching the blur of her lips. And from the next booth, I can see that this is one of those e-harmony moments. (laughs) Can tell by listening in that they find each other suitable, if not attractive and it seemed to be surprised by how happy they feel, here, face to face, eating their senior special breakfasts, asking the server to bring more coffee, just maybe at the start of something good. Thank you. the same sense of intimacy and generosity in her poems. As if, like Ted again, she's inviting you into her home, into her life, into the poem itself. Connie was born in, um, in nearby Madison, Wisconsin, and grew up in New Mexico before returning to the Midwest, where she's worked for about 20 years, I believe, as a librarian in Duluth, Minnesota. She's the author of five collections of poetry, including On Speaking Terms, which Copper Canyon published, and she co-edited a historical anthology of Minnesota women poets um, along the way. Um, In 2006, she was awarded the Witter Binner Fellow from the U.S. Library of Congress. Her forthcoming new and selected poems will be published in 2016. Please join me in welcoming Connie Wanick. Thank you. This poem is actually for all of you. 
It's called audience. How kind people are. How few in the crowd truly hope the tightrope will break. Rare's the man who'll shoot the pope or throw his shoe at a liar, though joining in, that's natural. An audience of St. Paul's sparrows is easily bored, easily frightened. One blasphemy and off they fly. Even a polite dog will snore through reprimands, though he'll rouse to follow the refreshments with a calculating eye. But people, especially Minnesotans, pull their sleeves over their watches and want to find a way to like you. If they can sit through winter sermons, they can sit through you. This poem is called Polygamy. It has to do with growing up on a farm. Um, Well, a little bit of a farm. What was left of a farm after it was broken up? Polygamy. Some men don't hate marriage, or slavery for that matter, nor can they ever own enough land. When I was a girl back on the farm, I surprised a wild tomcat in the hayloft. He was eating a kitten, its eyes still shut tight like apple buds. The shutter clicked as he looked at me, his expression fixed. I still think he knew what he was doing, though not why, which makes him almost human or makes us almost feline. I could hear the other kittens mewing softly somewhere in the hay, deep in the hidden nest established by our cat when she felt them coming. How many did he take, I wondered, and how can I punish him? My mother says she remembers that cat very well. This poem is called Walking Distance, and it's for my father-in-law, Stanley Dentinger, who was born in 1922 and died in 2004, and he was a ball turret gunner in World War II. He was a wonderful guy, and um, as a young father, he, was, he, he grew up in Mankato, and as a young dad, he lived in Iowa. Walking distance. Walking distance used to be much farther, miles and miles. Your grandfather, as a young man, with a wife and new baby son, walked to and from his job, which was in the next town. That was Iowa, 1946, and it was not a hardship, but an opportunity which is youth speaking, and also a particular man of German descent walking on good legs on white gravel roads, smoking cigarettes, which were cheap, though not free as they'd been during the war. 
Tobacco burned toward his fingers, but never reached them. The fire was small and personal, almost intimate, glowing bright when he put the cigarette to his lips and breathed through it. So many cigarettes before bombing runs, and none had been his last, a great surprise. Sometimes he passed a farmer burning field grass in the spring, the smoldering line advancing toward the fence. He had to know what he was doing so near the barn. You had to be close to see the way blades of dry grass passed the flame along at a truly individual level, very close to see how delicious a meal the field was to the fire on a damp, calm, almost English morning, ideal for walking. When Stanley died, my husband, Phil, he was at the hospital a great deal. When Stanley was in hospice, he was just waiting there with him. And uh, Stanley wasn't conscious anymore, but my husband just waited day and night. And then I wrote this poem about him coming home. It's called, I Heard You Come In. I heard you come in, something like three, and I knew what it meant. Your vigil was over. You'd stayed with your father day and night in case he woke, in case he came once more to the surface, to the interface between worlds. The hospital room with its enormous window came like a whale to break the glass sea and take a deep breath and cast a living eye upon you and roll weedy and barnacled and go back down. Thanks to morphine, his face betrayed nothing, not impatience, nor sorrow, nor gratitude, nor fear, none of the passions of a dying animal. His poor bony chest, his nose and fingers, half white, half blue. His cheeks stubble like a light frost. We could stare all we wanted. Thanks to morphine, the door was easy to open as we arrived and left. It wasn't like something, someone being born, the groaning, the leaky bloody struggle that ended with sad wails from the baby and smiles elsewhere. This was quiet, processional, an orderly cell-by-cell evacuation until the building stood empty and the fire burned it down. I'd like to read just a couple of poems about Mrs. God. And I don't know why more people haven't written about Mrs. God, but 
I thought about it, and, and I thought, actually, she's a lot like my mother, and God is quite a bit like my dad. This was, uh, I wrote a little group of them, and this is the first, and this is God. Someone had to do the dirty work, spading the garden, moving mountains, keeping the darkness out of the light. And she took every imperfection personally. Mr. Big Ideas, sure, but someone had to run the numbers. Then talk about babies. He never imagined so many. That was part of his charm, of course, his frank amazement at consequences. The pretty songs he gave the finches, those spoke to his innocence, his ability to regard every moment as fresh. Let's give them free will and see what happens, he said, ever the optimist. This one is called Genesis Continued. Other days, God seemed severe, but he was always hardest on himself. Curious, he watched Mrs. God the way she distanced herself from disasters, especially the ones he himself unintentionally set in motion. All God asked for was eternal work. Luckily, something was always broken. A virus began to kill all its hosts, or claws needed sharpening, and afterwards he had to make them retractable. Weather was a challenge, finicky like those old carburetors, but gravity turned out perfectly. Hummingbirds could fly, but people didn't float around, and two legs worked fine. Mrs. God's radiant smile Yes, he gave that to the sun and all the stars, and then to Eve. This is called First Love. After God created love, he felt himself swooning. What is this? He cried out to Mrs. God. What have I done? Is, is it a kind of music? It bears a strong resemblance, she said softly, watching the warm sea begin to rise and fall as though longing for the moon. Take slow, deep breaths, she advised, and it will pass. But it didn't. All day, God wandered in Eden on the verge of weeping. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in full bloom. He'd made it self-pollinating, but now he changed his mind and decided that to fruit, a second tree must be planted nearby. Close, but not too close, Mrs. God, the horticulturalist, advised. The bees will find it. Another evening glorious among the clouds. She was humming, mending something, when God touched her shoulder. Yes, she said, smiling. Yes, it was a good day. 
My last poem is a, a poem called Pumpkin. And it begins with an epigraph from Henry David Thoreau that goes, none is so poor that he needs sit on a pumpkin. It's a little collection, really, of lines that have to do with, with pumpkins. And it really originated with a photograph I saw of a fall field where all the greenery had died back and blackened and there were just thousands of pumpkins in this field. Pumpkin. To write as a field grows pumpkins. To scribble page after page with an orange crayon. To lose teeth and still smile. To survive a frost that blackened acres to wake after surgery, to live without rotting from within, to ignore imperfections of the skin, to be heavy and still be chosen, to please a strict vegetarian, to end the day full of light. Thank you. Thank you, Connie. Well, Ted and Connie are narrative poets who bring their homes and the homes of ordinary people into our worlds. Jeff Brown is probably best known for bringing the world into our homes. He's served as the anchor of the PBS NewsHour since 2005. He holds a bachelor's degree in classics from UC Berkeley, a master's degree in journalism from Columbia, and a law degree from UC Berkeley. He has spearheaded arts and cultural programming on PBS and has won an Emmy Award for his reporting. Throughout his distinguished career as a journalist, he's worked behind the scenes also as a poet. Um, the News, which again, Copper Canyon just published, uh, is his first book of poetry, and, and we're excited to be launching the book here at AWP. Um, and what, what I love, just as I love the, the intimacy of uh, Connie and Ted's poems, what I love about Jeff's work is the interplay between the global and the intimate. You get both sides of the screen, if you will, or both sides of the page, both uh, the creation and the, the audience on the other side, the consideration of the audience on the other side. So please join me in uh, welcoming Jeff to read his first book of poetry. Thank you. Thank you very much. Consider the camera, its gaze as long as the cloudless night, focused yet false, distorted. Hear the story of the air, the voices straining to breathe, the sound of sand sifting away. Ask yourself the questions, who, what, when, where, and why is the sky suddenly ash? 
why the laughter, why the dead, what the child said when asked who and where and why. Clarity, cliché, polished package that wraps the unwrappable. Here it is, your day. So that is the first poem of my first book. Uh, We heard Ted with his 20 books, and we heard Connie with her five, I think. And now you get me at the end with my one. The first poem is called Nightly News, and I wanted to read it first, and I put it first because it addresses a number of themes that came up for me. I thought of this all as a kind of project. Of course, it's a collection of poems, but in my mind, it was always a project, and hopefully, and now, a book. And the project was to look at the world that I live in, the daily news, Um, and not turn turn away from it, but to address it directly, but from a different angle, to think about the things that are there, sometimes behind the camera, sometimes beyond the camera, to connect the world out there of the daily news with art, literature, poetry, which is what I tried to do in my normal life as a journalist. I thought it would be interesting to try to do that through poetry as well. So there are a number of sections in the book. One of them is where I do go back to some places that I went to, people that I've met along the way, stories that I reported, but reimagine them and retell them through poetry. So here's one example. It's called Beirut, a city that's known a lot of violence. And I think what you'll see here in some of the poems is that I do use direct quotes. Sometimes direct quotes, sometimes I play with them a little bit, but they're based on actual people that I met. This one starts with a direct quote, Beirut. This is the family tradition. My father killed by his bodyguards, his father killed... They chose sides, chose right and then wrong, and he who longs for the security of death in his bed must leave this country. My son knows this, and his will too. Within the same frame, the eye deceives. Meanings hide when you stand outside this history. What I'd thought was construction, a building with views toward the sea on the rise, was its opposite. Destruction, pockmarked, see-through, gun-wrecked Holiday Inn, monument against forgetting. Restaurants filled, kebabs on the grill, and on this day, jets in Gaza, far to the south. In the south of this city, craters from other jets left again unfilled, while a billboard touts the party of God, permission required to aim the camera, granted by Hezbollah, watching us, watching them, watching them, watching us, and all know who controls these streets. Later, I walk the Corniche in this Paris of the Middle East. Was it ever so? 
two decades of war from Little Mountain. We were looking for the sea. Look again, so close, here. And there, can it be the familiar choice of chocolate or glazed? No wrong or right, Hezbollah by day, Dunkin' Donuts at night. Auden saw it in Bruegel's Icarus, within the same frame, tragedy plus a girl eating ice cream, strawberry. This is what we encounter too, memories that encompass craters and bombed hotels, faces red with hate at the jets overhead, but also the sound of the oud, the light in the park, nervous fathers watching for falls. Tries to get a little bit at what I see in my travels all the time, which is the drama of real life, but also the humanity of real life. One of the other things that I get to do often is see poetry out in the world. And I had an experience a few years ago in uh, one of my most interesting experiences, certainly with poetry, but in, the, in a, a high-security prison in Arizona with a poet perhaps some of you know, Richard Shelton, who runs the program at the University of Arizona, but goes into the prisons and runs poetry workshops. And they put out a, uh, a, a review called Rain Shadow Review. This is my poem for them. Rain Shadow Review. Locked down, confined, the latest lines by the poets of the Arizona prison system. High security Rincon unit outside Tucson. Orange jumpsuits and number two pencils. A writing workshop, the week's reward in a place not conducive to the truth. It can hurt you bad. Armed robbery, manslaughter, assault, murder, reciting their works, past and present. Rough men, bleak room, kind words, one hour's refuge in a human garbage dump. Roll call of wrongs under the influence of drugs, drink, ideology, gangs, stupidity, fear, and whatever, wrong and wrong again. Still, the teacher said, if you can learn to use the language honestly, you can apply it to yourself honestly. He speaks, listens, gathers up the books, the desert descending outside. Impossible to ignore when the review arrives that I was there for one day, five years before, and there they remain. I also tried to look in this book at my own work from the inside, the making of the news, the truth of it, I don't want to say the dishonesty of it, but the, what, what's the right word? The half-truths of it, you know? The stuff that we get right that's right in front of us, but the stuff we don't tell, the stuff we can't always tell. Sometimes the absurdities of some of the news. I'll read one that I, you're all familiar with the um, local news and the line, if it bleeds, it leads. You turn on your local news and inevitably there's the, uh, the latest murder or 
I don't know, stabbing or something terrible that's happened in your neighborhood. So this is just a little riff off of that. I call it song lead story. If it bleeds, it leads, and if it bleeds, it feeds the want of eyes, and I who bring you this festival of fear. If it bleeds, it leads, and if it bleeds, it sees the devouring eyes, and I who recite you this carnival of crime. If it bleeds, it leads, and if it bleeds, it reads the hunger of eyes, and I who offer you this parade of pain. If it bleeds, it leads, and if it bleeds, it needs the sanction of eyes, and I who perform you this theater of theft. If it bleeds, it leads, and if it bleeds, it heeds the fickleness of eyes, and I who play you this symphony of sin. If it bled, it led, the broken, the dead, the aversion of eyes, and I who sing you this lyric of loss. And then another one, which is I call the art of the interview, which is sort of inside sitting in a television studio, which is part of where I spend my life, in a very artificial setting, talking to people, sometimes just looking into a camera, talking to someone there. And all kinds of strange things happen through your mind while you're doing that, only some of which is actually about the substance of the moment. It might be things about what time you're supposed to pick up your children or when, you know, when is dinner or um, what's the next... Sometimes it's what's the next question. And then there are often things that go wrong because it's live television in my life. So the art of the interview. One, engaged, open, curious, firm prepared by all that's come before, no surprises, but ready to be surprised again. So much we don't know, we'll never know. A voice inside your head ticking down the seconds. Ask the question, listen, ask again, expect an answer, listen, then ask again, listen for doubt, resolve, some truth as though one could climb inside another's brain. So much we don't know. Tick. Don't ask. Tick. Don't want to know. Tick. Two. Once a man froze, unable to speak. I asked and answered every question myself, then said, you agree? We could have gone on that way forever. Another night, the lights went out. We understood we were still, again, always in the dark. Three. It was cooler than usual in August when the heat here sticks to your gut, a question held in the air, ready to burst, then pop, 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 and out. It was cooler than usual and the night air was still, still listening as the moon grew large, raised its white face, and said, let me ask you this. I have another section here in which I wrote about some of the people that I've been very fortunate to interview. There's a number of them, and 
A lot of them are very famous figures. I'll just read one for now. By the way, because I'm a journalist and because the facts have to be right, the poetry doesn't have to be right, by the way. I've had fun with that. But the facts have to be right. Michael, I didn't graduate. I don't have a law degree from, the UC, from UC Berkeley. I went to UC Berkeley Law School for two years, but I didn't graduate. So I, I don't want that getting around. I mean, I just can't, I can't have the, uh, the resume wrong. Stricken from the record. Only my mother cares, by the way, at this point, but she does care. And I, I meet a lot of interesting uh, and very famous and uh, important and leading artists and writers. And it makes me think a lot about where art comes from and the influences, and I get to ask them a lot of those kinds of questions. One of them was Richard Avedon, uh, the famous photographer who died a year or two ago. And I got to talk to him at the Metropolitan Museum in New York in the midst of one of his uh, major retrospective exhibitions. So this is, uh, we had to do it after the museum closes, so it's about 11 at at night or midnight, and dark and sort of mysterious in in the museum at that point. And you have to imagine we're surrounded by huge photographs of the kind he took, portraits, so very large uh, portraits of individuals. Richard Avedon. Look around you, all gone, all dead, the heavy-lidded, snake-charmed, sun-baked, the poets and actors, Capote with the blotched face, Marilyn in sequins, Beckett and one of his drifters, the powerful and the pretenders. They stood before a white screen as close to me as you are now, a confrontation that will last. Eyes closed tight and eyes alert, eyes ahead and eyes askew, as though they knew not to stare at the viewer, click, forever. All gone, all dead, forever. This is why I call the taking of portraits a sad art, he said. The camera lies all the time. It's all it does is lie. But this is no lie. Over there, my father, Sarasota, August 25th, 1973, staring at me forever. He does not age, but he will not return. And there are some poems in here that are more personal to me, and I'll just read one and then perhaps one more and finish up on the subject of fathers, because this one is for my father who died in the last year. It's called Succession. One morning, state police escort us to your grave The next, my flight is canceled. Maintenance issues breaking out all over. You would speak of a grand theory, something tying all this together. But you had none yourself, none that reached me then or now, as I drive your car slowly into the tranquil streets of my youth Here is where I learned to ride a bike on this high hill that is no hill at all. And still I fell. And now you descend 
and still I fall. And here is where I learned to doubt, in the chapel where we donned black skull caps that meant nothing, I tell you. If God speaks, it is elsewhere. And here are my own children, rooted and uncertain, watching me speak to you. You watched the news every night, worried if I did not make air, traveling, sick, useless, lost. Now that you are gone, traffic parted by the state police, can I, too, disappear? I'll just finish with one more. It's actually the last poem in the book. It goes a little bit, I hope, to the mystery of, um, that I feel in what I do so often of uh, entering people's lives in strange ways for one moment. could be a very, very dramatic moment. And then their lives go on. My life goes on. Something continues from it. But there's also the interesting exchange of camera interceding in life. The camera's on. Something's happening in front of that camera. This was in a small village in Haiti called Casite, where we were um, shooting a story about cholera that had claimed many, many lives. But this is a, a very small moment that wasn't captured in the story we did, but with a woman, just a, a, a local woman who was um, sweeping the dust off her steps. And uh, what we call B-roll, when we go to a place, we just have to shoot. We just shoot to get images of the place, which is what you see in the television story. So we asked if she would just continue on about her work, and we could uh, shoot her doing it. This is called Haiti Casite. We who lie, who cannot say for there is no good way to put this. We are here to show the horror of your life. In Casite, they passed out purification tablets, displayed with pride their new latrine. A woman sweeping her dusty steps asked to act naturally for the camera, to act as though we're not here. More honest and aware than us, replied, How can I pretend that you are not here? Was that not you who spoke just now? Thank you very much. So we're going to have a brief question and answer, and I should say I feel a little intimidated asking uh, Jeffrey questions, uh, but I'll give it a go here. So each of you, you know, Ted, you were an insurance agent. Connie, you were a librarian and are a librarian. And Jeff, you're a journalist. So none of you have gone through an MFA program, and yet here we are at AWP, an organization that celebrates writing programs and celebrates poetry. Knowing what you know about your careers in other professions, um, do you ever wish that you had gone through and completed uh, an MFA? And what would you uh, say to young students in particular who are looking forward to uh, 
potential careers either in or out of uh, the world of literature. Ted, maybe yeah, start with you. <laughs> you. You wrote you wrote a book encouraging people, you know, and, and the MFA that can be carried in a yeah, pocket. Yeah, I have a yeah, I have a book. Is my mic on? Yes. I, I have a book about you know trying to teach writing the poetry Homer Pyramanual. I I don't have an MFA because when I you know I'm an old guy and um, when I graduated as an undergraduate at Iowa State, there were only a couple of MFA programs anywhere in the country. Um, I did go down to Iowa U in the summer of 1962. They had admitted me to the writer's workshop, but I sat in on a session and didn't like it and, um, and went home and, and never went back. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the real... The, Something that I may have missed out on was that I did not have a community of other writers with whom to talk and socialize and, and work and so on. And, uh, and I don't know how that shaped my work. You know, when, a, when you're in an, working in an insurance company, I wasn't an agent, by the I'm way. I'm sorry. Yeah, I had a desk. <laughs> facts. I had a desk. Facts. Right. facts. The, the only other person in my insurance company who was reading poems was my secretary who was reading mine. <laughs> and, um, and I still thank her for that. But um, I think the MFA uh, is a marvelous uh, institution, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of teaching some and so on. I think uh, I did work on my master's, but... Um, down in New Mexico, they did not have an MFA. Uh, they had a master's in English, and I met my husband there working on my master's. And then I had a baby, and <laughs> I had to get some money to be a grown-up. And I missed out on the chance to, you know, to have more fun. <laughs> and I just think it's fantastic to have uh, MFAs and to prolong the, the active fun years as long as possible before you settle down and have to get serious about life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I just didn't have that. I had to buckle down and balance the checkbook. And so I think my whole life has really been based on that. Mm -hmm. But as far as the library work, I think that there's no finer mission in any occupation than the free, free information for everyone. So I was in love with the library mission, and I have no regrets about years I spent there. I think they were very good years. I'm retired now, so right. it was a wonderful thing, and I, I wish I'd have known about it a little earlier. <laughs> but such is life. Um, well, I feel least qualified, I guess, to talk about this because it's not really my world, although it is in a way because of all the writers that I've gotten to know. I did write when I was quite young and wrote in college. And In fact, I was telling Michael earlier, I think the last poetry reading I did was probably at the age of 21 or so, so <laughs> it's been many years, so um, here we are. But it never occurred to me that I was to, to um, 
I'm not sure why. I don't, I'm not sure there was a lot of MFA programs, not that I was aware of. It never really occurred to me. I was just trying a lot of different things. When I got real serious, it was actually in classics, um, as, and I imagined myself as a scholar. Uh, I was going to go on as a, in, uh, for a PhD. But I decided at the very last minute I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to live in the 5th century BC. I wanted to do something right now. And that now became journalism, not writing. So um, I think now if I had just started writing, I mean kept writing and written in a more serious, focused way, I guess I'd have many more books. But I would have had far less experiences of the kind I've had. And I don't know what it would have meant for my writing at this point, whether it would be better or worse. But the question more is connected to my mind, because I get asked this a lot by young people in journalism. Um, who, who, you know, in journalism, the question is, should I go to journalism school? It's a sort of version of the MFA. There are kinds of things where you don't necessarily have to go to school. You can just do it. You can mm -hmm. sit and write, or you can mm -hmm. actually start working as a journalist. So it's somewhat similar. And there's no answer to this in journalism or in the MFA or in writing. I mean, it can work both ways for people. But the most important thing I say, because I say it to myself, is learn something, do something. You know, write along the way. This is what I, I say to young people anyway. If you want to be a journalist, that's great. Be a journalist, but learn something in school. Don't, um, you might want to go to journalism school for a master's, but as an undergraduate, certainly, take some history and some philosophy or science or whatever it is and learn something. Go out into the world and learn to do things, whatever it is. For us, it all it was clearly professional. It was a professions far away from writing. Um, doesn't have to be that way, but I th so there are many there are many ways in. But I just I guess that's my one advice to my own kids and to young younger people was um, sort of grab the world as much as you can, and then find your way as a writer. So I want, I want to pick up a little bit on on that the, the notion of journalistic writing and and writing poetry and maybe talk about you know poetic language and journalistic language, particularly in how it involves and approaches the truth. I heard the truth mentioned several times this afternoon, including earlier today. You know, I've known Connie, I think, for about eight years, and today was the first time that we met face-to-face. -face. I also met her husband, Phil, and I said that I felt like I knew him from the poems, and, and they both said, oh, that's all lies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, so certainly you can have lies in poetry and you can have lies in, in journalism, you know, as another uh, three-lettered news corporation has shown us, or Rolling Stone, for that matter. So I'm, I'm wondering what are, what are the truths that you think you can get at in poetry that you can't get at in, in journalism or in all three of you? You know, what are the truths that you think you can get to in poetry? Let me preface this a little bit by <clears throat> telling you a little story. I, I have a dear friend who is an Episcopal priest, and I talked to him about spiritual matters and so on, and we were talking one day about the, the persistent disagreements between advocates of science and advocates of religion. And he said, ever since the age of reason, Ted, we have felt that we had to explain everything, which means that we have lost uh, the value of mystery. 
And I think that poetry can sort of encircle and present mystery in a way that perhaps other forms of writing can't. That in a poem I can suggest a kind of mystery to you that you can feel and that neither of us could completely articulate, but it's there. It's a package for a kind of charm and mystery and magic in a way, I think. Well, I'm kind of a muddled person, generally, <laughs> and uh, I do think that, but I've given a lot of thought to truth, to what's true, and that the problem, it seems to me, is that there's a temporal aspect to truth. So what's true now might not be true very soon. So I would be happy to tell the truth and be perfectly honest if I knew what the truth was. So that is my problem. <laughs> so I would have a hard time doing your job, Jeff. So. Yeah. Well, this is a, a obviously um, interesting and fraught question for me, and a couple ways into it. One, just technically in, this, in these poems, there are moments of actual quotation truth. And I had to think a little bit even about how to signal that use quotations sometimes, para sometimes I'm paraphrasing, sometimes I put things in italics. I, I, you know, of all the revising that I did, it was probably more on those lines about how do I tell the people, it's not just telling you any, or any readers, it's telling myself, being honest with myself, what is real here and what is not. But to the larger question, I don't set poetic truth as something higher than journalistic truth. I take enormous pride and responsibility for telling the, trying to tell the truth every night. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, there's no, there's no fudging that, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, thank you. But I just mean, I'm just, not, not, I'm not making a big claim. I'm just trying to tell you how I think about the, I mean, that's important, you know. The news should be the truth. But the point is that you know it's not the only truth, and I'm a subjective person, so I'm very honest, open about this. One of the reasons why I wrote a, uh, an afterward essay, which was Michael's suggestion, thank you, was to try to think through this thing for potential readers as well, is, is what's the difference here. So it's acknowledging that it's sort of the obvious. I'm you know, a man, in an, an American white man of the 21st century with a certain background, and I'm a father, and I'm a husband, and I'm a this and that. And so I bring all of that, you know, to the stories I do, but I do strive for objectivity, and I actually, it's a goal I believe in. It's just that I believe you can never be totally objective in that sense and get it right. So there's that for, the, for what I do every day. The poetry is a different kind of truth. I don't think you should read it and say, oh, now he's telling the truth. That's not right either. I've made up a lot of stuff. It's the truth of my imagination. It's a different kind of truth. And one of the, um, the metaphors that is so, you know, my obvious way in, and I used, and I read the Richard Avedon piece specifically for it, is because the camera. Is the camera, is that truth? Is that picture you just took true? Well, yes, it is, but what if you shift the camera? That's what Avedon was saying. 
what if I just shift the camera to the right or to the left or, you know, pull out? Well, that's the stuff we do every day. So I know that there, and I know that there's a lot going on behind the camera. I know that um, television news is kind of fake, and, I, and I, I don't mean fake as in we're lying, but in the sense that because the camera's there, things might be happening that wouldn't be happening. That's why I read, that's the basis of that last poem. So there's all kinds of interesting truths that one can tell, not one better or worse, but all to be taken quite seriously, I think. Um, we're running low on time here, but I'm going to ask one more question of you all. One of my favorite uh, poems is by the Spanish Nobel Prize winner, and it's called Who I Write For. And Ted, you talked about your um, Spanish Nobel Prize winner, Vicente Alexandre, sorry, and the poem is called Who I Write For. And you talked about your, your secretary being one of the only two people who read poetry at the insurance company. And in the past, you've told me that the reason she read the poetry often was because you would walk your poems out to her freshly of a morning and, and ask her to read it. And, and if she got it, um, you felt like you were hitting your mark. And, and so I'm imagining that each of you have an imagined reader or a real reader who you write for. And I'm just wondering if you can talk to that. You know, who do you write for? Um, I, I do. I do have an imaginary reader that shifts a little bit uh, sometimes, but generally, um, it's my mother who has been uh, dead for 17 years. Um, had a couple of years of college, liked books, and I, I. I think the reason she's my imaginary reader because all the little creative things I did as a child, I took to her and showed them to her. And I, uh, were she alive today, I would take poems to her and show those to her. So it's, it's a person with, not with a great deal of education, but somebody who loves books and loves words and, and so on. And um, I would like to imagine this whole group in that, in, among my imaginary readers, you know. I, I want readers. I, I'm really, I'm very interested, interested in having a, a broad, popular audience. Um, I, I, I'm not interested in a very sophisticated literary audience. It's nice to get that, but, but I, want, um, I want people on the street to stop me and say they read a poem I liked. You know. No problem there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, I guess my single reader is my husband Phil, who is a great reader. He's extremely hard on me, <laughs> and I don't blame him. <laughs> but I'm with Ted there. I would love to think that my poems are not puzzling and something that you can't make head nor tail of. I want, I want them to, to express clearly what I think and feel. And, you know, I think that they help me know what I think and feel. Like, I think and feel better because I write poems. They're my way of trying to figure things out. So, but... Every poem that I think is at all 
worth reading goes first to my husband and then often to a big pile of stuff <laughs> in the closet <laughs> that will never see the light of day. So, <laughs> but he's a great reader. I'm lucky. Uh, I don't have a specific person in mind. I think, or, or, or reader, um, I guess I think of it as a continuum from what I do in my journalism work, which is to connect to, to individuals, but hopefully with a large, and I very much care about reaching a large general audience, whether it's for journalism or for poetry. I don't mean my poetry necessarily, because one of the joys of my life really is to bring poetry to television. Mm -hmm. But who gets to do that, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. So to, to bring it to a, you know, a, a fairly large, not mass audience, but to do that. And so I think of my own poetry the same way, hopefully reaching to a um, general audience of um, interested people who, just as I do the journalism, they're not experts, um, they're not, um, you know, the masters of this particular area in this, in, in, in this scenario. They're not the poetry aficionados, but they're smart, open to the world, just interested in the world. When I first went on to television, actually, one of the interesting things you have to think about, you're looking into a camera, and you have to, at least I had to think about, who am I talking to? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you were thinking of, you couldn't think about your mother or your wife because <laughs> then, you know, oh my God, you know, that's way too personal. And if it's my wife, she's probably saying, you know, straighten your tie or something. <laughs> so it's not that. But in my case, I thought of um, uh, like a favorite uncle or aunt, you know, who I just know loves, you know, being in touch with the world but has a day job and doesn't have a lot of time and is just sort of interested but might be interested in this story. And if I say uncle so-and-so, you know, Here's this writer I met. He's never heard of him. He doesn't read books like that, but he's going to listen and be interested. Mm. And I think of the poetry the same way as trying to reach that kind of, that kind of reader as well. Mm. Well, thank you all for coming and thank you. Good job. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.